Crate Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome everyone out there to Straight Talk Live. Very excited to have you on our show today uh, to be part of our amazing conversation around an MBA, your fastest depreciating asset in our current times or not. Let's debate. Um, just to recap, what is this show all about? Straight Talk Live really came from our COVID bunkers of Af and I, who I'm about to introduce in a second, and really just this great pause moment that we're all inside of right now, this great reset where we're really getting to re-examine the world as we know it. And we're getting to see infrastructures and supply chains that are completely broken or exposed or ways where we just know we need to do a better job when it comes to responsiveness from healthcare to how we're having to work remotely and, and work on our technology and how to manage that effectively. Um, how we need to look at really rethink our educational systems and um, our food supply chains, uh, every walk of life. And that's exactly what this show is dedicated toward is what are the transformations we need to be exploring on a human, digital, and social level. That's really the theme of this whole uh, show. And so I'm Rick Snyder, I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm the author of Decisive Intuition and the CEO of Invisible Edge. And I've also had 20 years experience studying human behavior. And as this show is about an MBA, I never got my MBA, but I did get a master's in psychology, and that has really served me in my life. And so today we're going to really get into what is the best of how we can take traditional education today? How does that need to be reexamined? And how do we also open up room for real world education and the streets of hard knocks? And so I'm going to turn it over right now to my co-host, Off. Off, why don't you say a little bit about who you are and why you're here today? Thanks, Rick. Again, thrilled to be on yet another show, and this time with uh, someone I've had the pleasure of spending many, many, many great conversations debating great uh, topics and themes. Um, you know, Jim Berry is a great friend of mine, and uh, lovely to have you on the show. So, um, Af Malhotra is is the name. I am, of course, um, one of the creators of Straight Talk Live. I'm the co-founder of Growth Enabler, and I've uh, spent a couple of decades now in the industry um, running and leading large teams, investing in companies, building my own company, raising money, losing money, making money. And yes, I do have further education, um, a master's, but not an MBA uh, in business management. And um, I have, um, I'm thrilled uh, for this conversation because it's a hot one. It's going to be an exciting one and I can't wait to get into it. So welcome all. Over to you, Rick. Excellent. So <laughs> we're not going to that one yet. <laughs> okay. So what we're going to, I want to first just get in a little more into this topic around an MBA and we know we've all, at least my generation, uh, and often I always have a running joke, either we're the oldest millennials on the planet or the youngest Gen Xers. We're not exactly sure. We're not going to give that away on today's show. <laughs> but either way, we grew up in an era where there was the, the traditional way of education that we have known for, you know, centuries, you could say, where, you know, you do your four-year undergrad. And then if you have the privilege and ability to be able to go to grad school um, and then go out into the workforce, um, there wasn't the options that we have today. Uh, the internet, it wasn't as easy, easy to start up a business uh, where anyone can do it from the comfort of their home. And it's completely revolutionized 
the possibilities of how we bring our services and products to the world. Um, and, and education has never been easier to access and cheaper. It's completely changed the game. And so this conversation was already a hot one anyway. In, in my experience, the whole COVID situation has just accelerated a lot of what was already in the space around what is the value of an MBA today? Um, what are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? Is it something that I need? Is it something I should be considering for myself? If, if, off, if you had a kid that was of college age right now, what would you advise them around getting an MBA? Uh, it's a really interesting question when you start to think about it in those terms. And so, off, let me kick it off to you first. You've had your MBA in the past. Um, now it's a whole different era. What are you seeing right now in some of the trends and what's being exposed in, even in this pandemic time? Yeah, I, I think, and as we've been chatting about this, we were talking about this before we came onto this uh, live broadcast. I think where, what you've got right now, you've got a crisis situation. And, and every time there's a crisis or an act of God event or something that shakes up the world, you have these polarized viewpoints. On the one hand, you've got a community saying, seriously, you know, you're charging uh, ridiculous amounts of money for this further education. It's highly, you know, elitist. It's all about the Ivy League universities or the Oxfords and the Cambridge um, institutions. It's um, reinforcing a, um, you know, elitist and exclusivity driven uh, existence. Not for us. Time for change. Stop this right now. The Great Reset of the MBA or the education system. And last week we had two folks, um, you know, we had uh, two, uh, you know, educators from different universities debating the, the um, role of higher education, you know, 2.0. So that's one end. The other end is those who've had further education, MAs, MBAs, who've done well out of it. You know, uh, Jim was talking about a statistic where over 10%, so I think you said 11% of the, the billionaires of the world of the top CEOs, and you'll you, you, you correct me here, have had MBAs. Um, and it is, it's, a great, it's a great grounding tool, a fantastic way to build a network, um, learn amazing skills, build um, you know, almost your special, your special moves and your special um, sort of capabilities to deal with uncertainty. And there's one, one school of thought that believes that. And then there are loads of people who are sitting in the middle, scratching their heads and trying to work out what are they going to do? God forbid they are unemployed soon, um, or they're sitting around at home. How should they develop themselves and grow and grow in Excel? And you, are, you asked me about whether I've, I would send my, my daughter or son. I've got an 18 month old. She's got a long way to go, of course. She's, uh, she's probably going to do a junior MBA or whatever, whatever it's going to be called at some point. I'm not going to let her, I'm not going to let her off the hook. I just think, I think education is super value, valuable in whatever form, but I do think education needs to move with the times. We keep criticizing large enterprises and CEOs of these large companies and really, you know, going at them. I think educational uh, leaders, educators, academia needs to wake up and smell the coffee too. And I'm not saying, there's no generalization here. Some are doing an incredible job. Singularity in particular, which is not the conventional MBA school, 
but is really grabbing the, the bull by the horns and trying to do something different. Uh, abundance and exponentialism is the fabric and it's the DNA of what they do in their curriculum. Um, can, can we see a more hybrid model that would be good for my daughter in 5, 7, 10, 15 years, whatever it may be? Uh, I wish I wish we, we end up in that state. I love education, I love the concept of the MBA, but I'm going to say until Jim convinces me it's still a depreciating asset. So I'll stop there. But Jim, this is this is yours, my friend. Go go for it and tell us all about yourself, more importantly. And um, before you get into the topic, and I think your background has a lot to do with why you're on this show and why you've got such a unique and compelling perspective on um, the MBA and education at large. So if um, if you're good with it, Rick, I'm going to hand the, the baton over to, to Jim. Go for it, Jim. All right, I'll, I'll take it. Um, so, yeah, my background, why I'm here today is, is I'm actually the director of the UCL MBA, uh, a new MBA program that UCL is offering. Um, as, to, as to my background, uh, I came to academia. I have a PhD in organizational behavior. Uh, I teach MBAs and have for the last 10 years. Um, but before I got my PhD, before I went back to school, I spent nearly 20 years in industry doing a number of different things. Um, I was a professional coach, coach swimming. Um, I also helped, uh, a, uh, one of the big five back when there was a big five consulting firms, uh, create a research and development group around internet architecture and actually online learning. Uh, way back in the day, working with companies to do that. Uh, I then moved into doing some uh, a little more exciting things, uh, writing anti-terrorism textbooks with the U.S. government. Um, that, was, that was an exciting time, but uh, my role in really facilitating the expertise in the room and, and pulling that together uh, actually led me to uh, be one of the founding uh, leaders of a facilitation group that help businesses do things like strategic planning and new product development and mergers and acquisitions. Um, we, we did a lot, of, uh, a lot of work with companies on that. I've also had uh, my experiences with being a, a CEO of a software startup, uh, learning by doing, uh, and, and sometimes you learn best by failures. Uh, we, we, we had a, a good run and then uh, a, a dramatic environmental shift happened, 9-11, uh, um, and very shortly thereafter, we, we called it quits because the, the environment had shifted dramatically underneath our feet. Um, at some point, my wife uh, told me, uh, you know, you keep talking about wanting to do a PhD, either do it or shut up. And uh, when somebody lays that on the, on, the, on the ground, I had to pick it up, and so I had to go and get my PhD. Um, so I got my PhD and uh, took a position at UCL as a, as a research faculty member, uh, teaching students, but uh, doing quite a bit of, of research around creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship. Uh, and that's how I, I met AF actually speaking at the, the London Stock Exchange to a group of entrepreneurs. Um, but a few years into my time at UCL, uh, I was asked to look at the possibility of launching an MBA at UCL. UCL hadn't had uh, uh, our own MBA for years. Um, and 
it was something that I, I'll be honest, when I looked at doing that, um, my initial reaction was, man, the MBA space is just saturated. You know, does the world need another MBA? And so I went away before I, before I said yes to the position and uh, took a hard look at, at what was being taught in MBAs, how it was being presented, and, and what would be the unique value proposition that I thought UCL and UCL could bring to the space. And um, realized that, that there was space and that there is need. Um, the UK government, again, UCL being University College London, uh, the UK government has identified some of the careers that in the future are in high demand that are going to see exponential growth. And one of those is senior leadership, director level, uh, senior managers within organizations. And where do those people come from? Where do they get the knowledge and the skills in order to become senior leaders? Uh, and those and those directors of companies and, and I do think an MBA is a, a structured way of putting that together. Um, Af and Rick have both mentioned the fact that you know being in COVID we're all locked down so we're having to go out and source information from from a number of different places. You know not every video you watch on YouTube is helpful. Not all information has equal value. Mm -hmm. I do have to say that and I and I whether it's UCL, whether it's London Business School, whether it's Harvard, whether it's Wharton, um, part of what you're getting when you're going to get an MBA is the expertise curating information into a, a structured way so that, you know, just going back to the old analogy, you don't take a baby and teach them to do a cartwheel first. You've got to get them to crawl, to walk, to run before you then introduce the, the advanced pieces. And so uh, an MBA and, and, and most education is structured in a way that you put A before B, because B, you know, you need A to do B. Yeah. And, and so while I think there is a vast majority of information out there and, and you know, gosh, that you can get a book that tells you, you know, you don't need to go get an MBA, just read this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you might get a lot of the buzzwords, you might get a lot of those pieces in there, but you're not going to get the contextual understanding of how to apply them and, and how to really utilize them going forward. And the other thing is, an MBA is a degree that needs to be done in context. And if you're sitting in your closet or in your bed reading a book, you've got one context, maybe two, the author's context in yours. When you're in an MBA classroom, you've got 15, 30, 40 other students who are hitting you with their perspectives, their experience. And that is such a key part of the learning environment of an MBA, more so than I think any other degree, is, is that, that contextualized experience being brought to the classroom. I advise students, don't get an MBA straight after your undergraduate you you need to go work for for four five six ten years before you go back to get an MBA because that's when you're going to extract the value. And so you know, hopefully, trying to uh, respond a little bit to to the framing of you know you can get knowledge a lot of places, you can get explicit knowledge a lot of places. You know, really understanding tacit knowledge and, and understanding how it applies in different contexts 
is something that, that takes a little bit more structure and I think a little bit more intent. Um, but I, I will tell you, you know, four years ago when I was tasked with, with founding the UCL MBA, uh, you know, my first reaction was, you know, just like what the title is, it's a depreciating asset. You know, it's not. If you can finish your MBA and have an increase in salary, and then that increase gets a raise each year on top of it, that's the definition of an appreciating asset by definition. Now we can say, is an MBA more valuable today than it was 10 years ago? Are the multiples of increase changing? Uh, we can have that discussion, but uh, depreciating asset, does it become less valuable over time? Uh, after you mentioned the fact that you love learning. I mean, have you ever learned something that you wish, man, I wish I didn't know that. I, I, let, let's not get no. into that, but I, no, I, no, actual no. knowledge. <clears throat> No, absolutely not. And, and, and you, you, make a, you make a really good point. And I think, I think if you look at yesterday, there's, no, uh, there's just no um, doubt that until now, an MBA qualification for all of its, not all MBAs are equal. That's the yeah. other piece, right? And I think we need to call that out because yes. uh, I'm not as familiar with how you managed to, how, as in not you, but how a university manages to get approval to be uh, an MBA um, uh, distributor, if you want to call it that. And there seem to be hundreds and thousands of universities globally who dish out MBAs, but not, and not every university is as uh, equipped or has the right resources or capabilities. And so a word of caution, if you've got an, M if you've got an MBA in your LinkedIn profile, people will look at where you've got the MBA from as much as a degree, as much as any qualification, as much as a job for, for that matter. And that's why brands and who teaches you and, you know, whether you go to UCL and you learn from Jim Berry or you go to a Babson College or you go to whatever, uh, there's some notable professors and thought leaders who've dedicated their lives to research and therefore the pedigree, the substantial, you know, substantial nature of the curriculum and everything you learn from it makes a big difference. So sold absolutely yesterday the question really is tomorrow and we yeah, live in a world where it's you know the international student uh, population that most mba schools have enjoyed which has given them a lot of revenue and good for those international students i think that's fantastic if they can afford it um, and it's given you know universities a lot of revenue i was looking at data out of the us and in europe in europe over 40 percent i believe institutions on average have students coming out of uh, outside of Europe, international students, if not more. Southern yeah. institutions like Cambridge and Oxford have even more um, international students, and it's a massive revenue generator. Let's just talk business um, yes. and unit economics. They make shed loads of money out of it. Now, these guys can't travel, the international students. They're stuck in their respective countries, or not, perhaps. And so there's a lot of threat to the, um, the traditional MBAs from the fact that, you know, the IITs in India or the... the you know, the universities out in China who are doing very well will start to draw their local you know, students, the local citizens to their courses and, and so on. And there's been loads of cross-pollination over the last decade. So mm -hmm. loads, of qu loads of questions and implications here. The world we're approaching now where it's going to cost you 50, 60, 70 grand, maybe 150 grand, depending on which university you go to, to do an MBA. There's a lot of money, Jim, right? Yes, yes. Not a lot of people can afford that. And I want to start with the, the fairness 
democratization accessibility point because loads of people on the back of on the back of laptops they'll listen to the session now and or replay and can benefit from this knowledge and 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 good for them and that's what the mission is and it's free and that's even better right um but it costs a lot of money to come to a, a business school and i'm not going to ask how much you charge but if you want to tell us that would be helpful at ucl um what would you think this a is this fair now in this post-covid environment where people have built new habits they're used to online learning people have started to realize there's stuff out there and new ways of growing and developing that they never really considered because this was the default option and so that's an advantage and a disadvantage for traditional schools and do you not think uh, two things need to happen one this whole pricing thing needs to be re-examined this is not fair right two uh, a more ambidextrous, more flexible teaching um, system where you can learn not just from the school. I mean, it would be amazing if I could learn from Singularity, UCL, MIT, Harvard, kind of at the same time. Why can't, have, why can't I learn from different institutions and the best professors in the world on a single platform? Whether it's called UCL or it's called Babson, I really don't care. I'm a learner. I want the best educators educating me. And I'm thinking way out, but I do think the reset needs to happen in business models because it's happening in, in enterprise, right? So I'm throwing loads at you and I know it's not, you don't have to answer all the questions. Um, yeah, which but, question do you want me to answer there? Um, let let, me, let's, start, let, let's start with the payment and the extortion of fees because we've had let, loads let, of questions. Let me go at that and I will. Um, yeah. You know, about, about 10 years ago, MOOCs were the hottest thing in the world, right? Massive online courses. Yeah, they have not done very well as a whole. Part of the reason is, is the learning experience people get doing that. It's a one way learning experience. When you were doing your session last week, education 2.0 yeah. and, and one of your one of your uh, faculty members, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name right now, uh, mentioned, you know, the lecture theater standing up and lecturing at students for hours. You know, I very rarely see that in modern universities today. Very rarely at UCL will I see a faculty member get up and talk at students for hours on end. That, that doesn't happen anymore. If it does, it, it's a very small minority. Um, we deal with things like flipped classrooms where we will, we will put some lecture material online that students are expected to watch beforehand. And then when we get together, we use that time together to have in-depth interactive discussions. Yeah. And I think that's what you're missing when you go to a MOOC model. Uh, you know, we're talking about business here. Anytime you're looking at a product, how do you pay for the product? How do you, how do you leverage the, the finances to put, uh, my student faculty ratio is one to 15 right now. So my students have the opportunity to interact with global faculty, 15 students to one in the classroom. You know, that, that's a, that is a fairly expensive proposition, but what they get for that is that very highly personalized piece. If you go the other extreme towards the MOOC end, where you're talking about, you know, these massive classes, one faculty member teaching, you know, 5 million people, you're losing that, that personal nature of education, which I think is so valuable. And I do think we have to find a balance between the two. Um, but the democratization of an MBA, an MBA is expensive. It is. And, and, and different MBAs have different cost points. 
a lot of the, the cost in doing an MBA is in the services that are wrapped around the MBA. One, you, you can look at any of the top 50 MBA programs and one of their highest cost points for administering an MBA is career services. Why? Because part of the value of getting an MBA is getting a job afterwards and getting the right job and getting the right entry to a career. And so those MBA programs have very high costs. Um, I've known programs, I, I believe Harvard has over 200 career, uh, career professionals who help their students find jobs. Not only their students, but their alumni. So, so there, there, there are high costs to that. And, and if you go to this kind of MOOC model, you lose all of that. So there, there, at that point, again, go read the book and then you know, say you have the knowledge, but you really won't. And I think that's, I think that's part of the problem. Now, if we're talking about um, justification, uh, societal justification, you know, making it democratized for everyone, uh, I do think that some of the lessons that are learned in an MBA are really meant for people who are leaders of organizations. If you are running an organization of 50, 60, 100 people, that's where the MBA really has value. If you are running a shop of two people, will an MBA help you? Yeah, probably. You know, I think the, the, the learning is valuable. But where it really becomes leverage to not only have value for you, but for your organization and for society as a whole, is when you are then directing larger numbers of people. And when you're doing that, oftentimes you already have assets that have high value. So the fortune, uh, the, the graph that you showed uh, from Fortune magazine that showed there was only a 1% return for an MBA, you know, in, if, you, if you go deep in that article, which is a little hard because the, not the Fortune article, but the actual academic article that it was based on, the econ article, uh, there's some heavy stats in there. But if you really dig deep in, uh, what they're saying is people who go to get an MBA tend to have a high salary to begin with. And then the MBA gives them an incremental bump in salary. And so that, you know, if you're already making 100,000 a year and you start making 120 a year, you know, that's great. Woo, an extra, an extra 20% is, is fantastic. Um, but that's different than if you were doing a MD where you were working, volunteering at a hospital, making 11,000 a year, and then you finish your MD and now you're making 120,000. You know, that difference is, is much greater. So I, I think there was some misleading bits in, in, the, in the study that you, that you put forward that is, pulls that, pulls that aside. Now that said is every MBA program I know has scholarships where they are looking to bring in people from the nonprofit sector, from the government sector, where, where people might not have the extreme high salaries, where they might not have come from uh, the backgrounds that are uh, privileged. Um, we've got a very small cohort in our starting group, uh, and and uh, we we have some folks who come from very uh, underprivileged backgrounds. And are they successful now? Are they making themselves successful? Yeah, you know they didn't come from families that had wealth. They didn't go to Cambridge or Oxford. 
or Harvard uh, as undergrads. Uh, but they're succeeding in our program um, primarily because they're, they're driven to do it. Well, what, uh, what percentage, Jim, what percentage of, sorry to interrupt, what percentage yeah. of your total class is scholarship-based? So at this point, we do not offer full scholarships. I believe the number is about 50% of our students are getting some sort of scholarship funding. Okay. And there, as we grow and we build the program, there will be more of those opportunities put out. Um, I do know that, you know, the top 25 schools offer uh, oftentimes many full-time scholarships. And the other thing is, is a number of organizations and professional bodies will assist students in funding their MBA. Yeah. Um, about 50% of our students also get some funding from their employer to do it. And again, going to get an MBA, not everyone is going to pull value out of it the same way. Um, and so, uh, if you are somebody who is who is working um, as a teller in, in a grocery, you're not going to get the same value as if you are the manager of, of the grocery store. Um, the, the, the leveraging of that information to a single person's job is not as great as leveraging that to a team of 20, 30, 40, or 50. You know, Jim, the, sorry, go on, Ray. Go on. Yeah, Jim, those, I really appreciate some of those. Those are really fair points there. And I think we also have to introduce the context of today, the context mm -hmm. of the pandemic and what's happening yeah. now and all the uncertainty that is happening in this moment around everything around education. Yeah. And we're really talking about the value of education, the value of an MBA right now. And so I really like your point about, and I understand this too from my own master's program in psychology, the real value was the conversations. It was the engagement in the moment with real people dissecting different viewpoints, experiential learning was my favorite and still is the best, I think, out there. Um, but so here's my point is, why would someone pay for a full-time MBA program that's now online? So, so let, let me, um, I will answer that question, but I, 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 I have to caveat it. The UCL MBA is a classroom-based MBA delivered online. We designed it that way because we were looking to the future of education. Mm. So our students actually get together. If you're taking an accounting module, you will have some information given to you via video through our online learning platform. But then you will actually get together with 15 other students in class at 7 o'clock on Thursday night with a faculty member. And you have class for an hour and a half mm. in Zoom. So in this platform. So we are, we are having these debates, we are doing it. Uh, we are having students from all over the world. And guess what? Our program's not interrupted at all. We're running, we're, we're doing it. Now the question you asked is, is, what if somebody has gone back to get a full-time MBA and now all of a sudden their learning is online? I think it, it, it's, a, it's a different product than what they initially asked for. I think in situations where it's a two-year MBA and you're in the second year of your MBA, you probably have gotten a lot of the value of being on campus, of building your networks, of knowing the people so that you can continue to stay in contact through this kind of mode. People, let me back up. 
there are multiple ways to do an MBA. You can do an MBA online, you can do an MBA part-time, you can do an MBA full-time, you can do an MBA, a classroom-based online model that's kind of a hybrid that we're, that we're doing. People go to do an MBA in those different programs for different reasons. You oftentimes go to a full-time MBA when you're looking to do a career transition and particularly the two-year MBAs, because it gives you the opportunity to do internships. And it gives you the opportunity to build long-term network relationships that a one-year MBA, full-time MBA doesn't give you. Now, the full-time MBA, when you go to campus, even the part-time MBAs, when you go to campus, you're building close physical networks. Um, even a part-time MBA are often people who work in the same area. So you're building networks within your, your current work group. It might not be as global as a full-time program or an online program, um, but they, they can be very deep connections. So the reasons people take MBAs are different. If you had signed up for a full-time MBA and you were starting in September, and your course is now telling you we're gonna be teaching you online, that's a, that's a, that's a very different question then again, if you're in the second year of your program, or if you're doing a part-time MBA and you're dealing with people that you might already know, because part-time MBAs oftentimes pull from their local communities, Agreed. their local groups. Um, so I, I, I think it is different depending upon the context at, at which people are going to. If somebody is looking at a full-time MBA and they're starting in an online program and they're looking to do career switching, um, you know, I, I think they have to reassess what, what the MBA is going to offer them and what they're looking to get out of it. Um, but again, I think it's different if you're looking at a full-time MBA or if you're looking at ours, like a hybrid model where you want that classroom interaction, you want that debate, you want that back and forth, you want the building of the networks. Um, but, you know, you can't quit your job to do it um, or you don't want to. Uh, I, that's part of why we created it this way to, to let people continue in their careers. Um, and I, and I think there's high value in having people in class, not just from other areas of the world, but in other areas of the world. Uh, we actually, when, when we had class, I teach a class on critical thinking in our, our final class, we were dealing with the COVID issue and the uncertainty around it. You know, what, what could you have done? in anticipation for disruption of business. And we had people from Malaysia, not just from Malaysia, in Malaysia, in Australia, in New Zealand, in the United States, in the UK, in Brussels, all having a discussion about what was going on. And uh, it, was, it was really dynamic because it wasn't just like, well, this is what I've heard. It's like, no, this is what I saw this morning. So I think I went a little off topic, but I got a little excited there. Sorry. I'm a little passionate about this stuff. And so you should be. So I want to throw something into the mix because um, yeah. I, I said something earlier on. And this is about, you know, this is not just about being provocative for, for no reason. It's about debating something that needs to be debated and discussed. And I think we've talked about what MBAs were yesterday, what they need to be, what they may need to look like tomorrow. We yeah. have tackled the pricing piece. You've done a fantastic job of of justifying it to some extent. But again, if I was the underprivileged person and I couldn't get a scholarship, uh, it's still yeah. not stacking up for me. It is, it's not, it's, it is, 
it is truly elitist, whether we like it or not. And even if you say, when you when you give the example of a six-figure salary, I mean, how, what percentage of the United Kingdom or even the U.S. earns six-figure salary, a, a single-digit percentage, right? You're talking about those people who've already kind of made it, at least in terms of income that they bring home, and they have surplus cash versus, um, you know, the average individual or the chap or the or the or the, or the the man or the woman, and. I, I want to throw something into the mix, right? And what I'd like to throw into the mix is this. Imagine a world where a little bit like software, I'm going to give you the example of software because it's my, it's my game and it's digital. So when you have a software, piece of software, and you want your software to uh, have longevity, right? You, you, come, you, you, you bump into this obstacle which we call um, interoperability or opportunity or integration where you create something called an API, which is an interface that plugs into other softwares. And then it all kind of works beautifully together or you, whether you want to call it integration or middleware, whatever it may be. But one software talks to the other, the other one talks to the other and the end user, the enterprise in the business world is happy because they're like, wow, I can use best to breed of everything and they all work together and I'm a winner. Now take the same example and let's have two different parties, educator and learner. The learner is the customer, right in the center of this. The learner wants to learn from Jim. No, Barry. I disagree. I disagree with you wholeheartedly on that. The learner is not the customer, and I, I think this is a problem with education as a whole. Society is the customer. Society is the customer. But the learner is paying, though. The learner is paying you. Part, the fee. Learner is paying for part of it. Part of the education is being paid by society, by taxes, by government grants, by research grants that faculty get. So, so they are one part of a larger customer body. They might, they're, the, they're the customer, but they're also the product. Okay, so, so it, is not, it is not just a customer piece. And, and Af, I'm gonna flip your model on you. When you create your API, you sell your software, right? You have yeah, a revenue sure. model, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what happens if a company comes to you and says, I'd, your software is great. I'd love to use it, but I can't pay you for it. Well, what you uh, I'm not talking, I, but I'm not, I'm not referring to not paying. I'm saying, <laughs> I, I'm saying the learner, le, the, if I'm a learner, if yeah, I'm a learner, yeah. I'd like to have UCL and the best educators and professors from UCL teaching me what they're best at teaching me. I'd like okay. to have the Harvard professors teaching me what they're best at teaching me. I'd like to have the MIT, the whole lot. And I'd like to have an integrated course. Where's revenue share going on? You're still charging me, but I'm, I'm not limited to UCL or I'm not getting stuck in, are you Ivy League or not? It's really as binary as that. Oh no, I'm not Ivy League. So, no, but Af, when, when we're talking about education, when you're just talking about videos, you can go on YouTube and watch Clayton Christensen talk about innovation. You can, you can listen to me talk about creativity. That's not education. That's information. Now, if you want the best of me, how many students can I deal with on a one-to-one -one basis and have a depth of education that is necessary for something like an MBA level material? And so there, there, are, there are critical numbers you're dealing with here. Um, and I think what you're talking about is kind of a MOOC model. And, and, and we've seen that that is a flawed system. Now, I do think 
God, would I, would I love to be able to reach everyone in the world with what we're doing? Yes. I can't be reached by everyone in the world and respond individually. And, and education to me is that dynamic. It is that interactive component that's necessarily there. And I think the model that you're proposing is not that. And, and, and I don't know how the best professor at Harvard is going to interact with, you know, 250 million students who, who want that one piece of material. So you're going to have to suffer through with the guy who's second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh best. Right. Having those discussions with you. And I think that's where you do have, you have tiers of universities, you have tiers of faculty. And um, that, that's the nature of the beast because one person can't be everywhere. And, and so, so how do you do that? Now, I will tell you, MBA programs across the board are looking for exceptional people from varied backgrounds. When I put together a cohort for my MBA, I, I don't want, you know, 50% doctors and lawyers in my program. I want a variety of people. I want entrepreneurs. I want people who work in charity sector. I want people who work in government. That's where you get that diversity of opinion in. And so, so uh, MBA programs go out of their way to find exceptional talent in uh, non-ordinary places because that adds to, to, the, to the educational value. Um, does that mean that every single person in the world can access an Ivy League or, or a, a global top 50 MBA program? No, no. Um, again, some people, it, for what they're doing with their jobs, what they want to do with their jobs, it just doesn't make sense for what they want to do. Mm. Let, me, let me ask you this, Jim, is once again, given the state of the times right now, yeah. What are you seeing as, as objective as you can possibly be? And it's not just about UCL, but around all MBA programs right now or higher education. What do you see right now is getting exposed in where th upgrades and updates need to happen to reach today's marketplace? What do you, what's obvious to you right now as we're in this big transition? Well, you know, we're obviously education is, is in a rough spot. You can't put 40,000 students on, on college campus in, in, tight classrooms. I can't fit, you know, 60 students in a classroom for, for a two hour uh, class. Uh, I can't run a module with, you know, back-to-back uh, -back where I have 50 students leaving the room and 50 coming in. You know, that just doesn't work in the COVID-19 world. So we, we are working on doing some transition to online. Um, as I mentioned with like the second year of an MBA program, we're dealing with that with a lot of our undergraduate students. Uh, you know, some of them have just finishing their first year of a program and then, you know, they might have had to finish off their modules in an online world. And is that ideal? No, it's not. Um, I think a lot of programs, unlike our MBA that was built to go online, uh, are having to be retrofitted to that model. Uh, but I think a good thing is, is that there are enough of the models out there who do do this this way that we're able to help educate the other educators as to how to uh, teach effectively in a, in a digital world. 
um, how to flip your class so that you're not lecturing people in this kind of environment, that you're having these, these back and forths and, and these discussions. Um, so do I think we are probably going to be advancing the flipped classroom model? And the flipped classroom, sorry, is the model where the, the pieces of material where a professor is just one way giving information out mm -hmm. uh, is taken out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. and is put on a digital platform. It is done digitally so that people can consume that information because it's one-way information out. Mm -hmm. And then where you have students coming to class, you then maximize the value of that time where they're not passive receptors of information. Yeah. They're active engagers in it. So that's the time when you do things like experiential learning, um, where you are, are debating a case study where uh, information is changing on a, on a real-time basis um, so, that, so that you get some of that um, tacit knowledge uh, that is really so valuable. But I, I think the COVID-19 is really pushing universities to uh, examine those historic practices that you and AFRA had been talking about that I'm sure you experienced, AF, when you did your MBA. You probably sat in some classrooms where people just talked at you. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I that has been changing over the last few years, um, over the last decade. Um, and I think that's just going to be accelerated. So when we get back to the physical classroom, I think it is going to be different. I think, I think there, there is going to be a lot more balance of, uh, how can we maximize this time together, um, versus just time on task. Did James, I answer your question, Rick? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's just really what I'm trying to get the heart of is, are you seeing that your university or universities are technologically prepared for this moment? Are they being caught with their pants down? What are you seeing in real terms around the preparedness, the ability to yeah. respond to the moment, and, and what's painfully obvious of what needs to shift fast? Yeah, so, so it, I am involved at UCL, obviously, that's where, where I'm working. I, I am also an adjunct faculty, faculty member at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, but I also have contacts at, at a number of different institutions. And as somebody who is leading an online program uh, that is classroom-based, that uh, really has taken this model uh, from the ground up, uh, I, I'm, I'm in deep conversations with a number of different universities. I will tell you, universities have learning management systems in place. Any in-person class has an online uh, portal through which materials are disseminated and those kind of things. I think where uh, the big shift is, is educating faculty on how to use these kind of tools, uh, the Zoom platform, whether they're using Google or, or Teams or Adobe Connect. Um, and really trying to figure out what information should be done in this setting, what information should be recorded and disseminated, and then how do you then check that the students have absorbed what you have disseminated? So uh, there are multiple ways. If, if I just sit and lecture at a screen for an hour and a half, you know, that's, that's painful for anyone to watch, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, even if it's a topic I'm really excited about, yeah. Um, my wife is a professional, is, goes through professional accreditation, and she's got these continuing education courses, and they just, they drone on for like an hour and a half, and I can just see her eyes glaze over as she's going yes. through them. So I think something like portioning out in information into digestible pieces, 
And then how do you connect those things together so that they're not disparate, so that they are connected whole, um, is something that uh, we're working with educators on getting better at doing. Um, and I, I think that's probably the biggest shift is, is figuring out how do I work in this new style? Mm-hmm. We're all really hoping we're back on campus next fall. Yeah. I mean, that we're really hoping. Don't know exactly how it's going to be, be put together, and that's going to be a decision for, for the politicians and the leaders of, of, of uh, governments, uh, probably even more so than, than, than universities. Um, but how we can best leverage whatever the system is is what we're trying to build towards right now. Uh, I'm just, again, thankful my program is online as a whole. So we're, no changes for us. We're, we're, we're driving straight forward. Amazing. You're ahead of the curve, as they say. You, you have yeah. the foresight, huh? So, well, I, I hope so. Our program is based on, on, on two core things, is using data to make decisions and dealing with uncertainty and looking at, at, at futures and being proactive in doing that. And that's why we chose this mode of delivery um, because you know, in a high, highly uncertain world, we're dealing with uh, business leaders who travel. And so how are they gonna take the, their accounting class if they just flew from you know, Australia to South Africa? Well, they can with us. And that, that's the niche I think we found. And I just want to remind all the listeners out there that now's a great time to ask questions. So if you have any burning questions, whether you're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or here on Zoom, uh, please send us in your questions for Jim, for us, uh, that you're dying to ask around this topic. And we're monitoring all, right, Rick? Yeah, we have Denise monitoring in our background. Uh, Thank you, Denise. And then we have a few on Zoom here. Rahul asked a question about uh, the average salary in the UK is 28,000 pounds or so in 2019. The cost of a top MBA program is 45,000 at Oxford, 82,000 at London Business School. How do we solve the conundrum of elitism to bring education to the masses? We've covered that to some bit, but I don't know if there's anything else you care to say about, about that piece. Yeah, and, and again, I, would, I, would I love if, if I could, well, let me change this. When people apply, I accept them on their academic uh, fit for the program. Mm-hmm. I, I do not look at ability to pay. Ability to pay comes in when we make scholarship decisions. And would I wish we had a lot more scholarship dollars, pounds to, to put in play? And again, uh, working across universities in the United States and, and, and in the UK, yeah. Anywhere where you have a, a pay barrier for education, it's something that you, that you wish you could lower at times. Um, but lower versus giving the quality that, that we're giving, um, you know, you, you always have to make that, that, that choice, that trade-off. Um, and it is expensive, but again, it, it's expensive because it's geared towards people who are at the top of organizations. Um, Jim, here's a burning question. Yeah. Uh, this is a follow-up of what you shared earlier. So if society is the customer, what precisely yeah. is society getting as a benefit? Uh, it's the, the connection is much more clear for the student in general. That's more yeah. of a clear connection, but 
How does society benefit? So. How would you answer that? I don't think so. When you have growing, growing economic activity, when you have startups that are thriving, when you have uh, environments where engineers are able to take their ideas out of the lab and put them into a marketplace and solve a real problem that people are dealing with, that's what MBAs do. And so uh, the value to society is in advancing the commercial and the uh, commerce of society, which when we look at, when we look at money, pounds, dollars, yen, um, money gets multiplied in a marketplace. And so the more you have uh, fluid commerce, the, the, the ease of, of which uh, goods and services can be, can be moved within a society, the higher that initial uh, money that, that, that underlies the economy gets multiplied. And so economies that can, can create economic systems where um, products get built and sold in an efficient fashion um, are going to be better off. And so I do think the MBA delivers value to society. Uh, I, I see actually a comment down here by, by someone else uh, in the group that, that MBAs uh, are often uh, producing a surplus that then gets returned back to their universities. Um, they, they do do that at times, um, and, and some MBA programs do return a positive revenue, uh, but that's, that's not normally what, what the deans I'm talking about are, are, are dealing with. They, they want to balance uh, accessibility, and so oftentimes the, the higher revenue they get gets plowed back into scholarship activity um, for access. So it is, it is uh, at times, uh, the wealthy paying the higher amount that are then subsidizing those that don't have as much. Um, but you, you've got you've to have somebody paying the bill. Um, Jim, I, Jim, I got one for you. Let, let's yeah. assume that uh, globalization will slow down as a result of what is going yeah. on and localization or regionalization will be on the rise. Um, now, if you look at countries like the UK, they, that may be a great thing for us because we will resurrect industries that we've neglected over the years. And you need people, smart people, to resurrect those industries. You need industry builders, as I call them, or job creators, not just employees. You need all of them. You do need those leaders who can, who have the courage and who can, you know, anticipate movements in markets like you did with your online yeah. MBA before others did. And they can be the, um, you know, the catalyst for new jobs, new opportunities for the youth that's coming, uh, you know, up here in the UK. So here's a thought. What if there was a way, bearing in mind that most of the revenue in the past has come from international students and it's been tidy, it's been a healthy amount. And let's, let's assume if globalization is going to slow down and people aren't going to get on planes straight away, let's say a year down the line, they may do, may consider, then local universities in their native countries will pick up the baton and try and build capabilities and give them equivalent courses. And loads of people will go to the IITs or equivalent in their respective countries. And that's, that's, that's one part and that's good. That's great for them. When it comes to the UK, should MBA courses not get subsidized to help tomorrow's leaders 
to help young people in this country who probably can't afford these amazing courses but are super talented maybe they haven't earned a hundred grand a year any a year because anyway the salary jumps in the uk over the last decade have been pathetic uh, because we've been just sort of coming out of a recession and we're going back into a re recession or deflation mode, whatever it may be. I'm just wondering whether universities have a responsibility, as does government and the Department for Education, to try and come up with all this big money that uh, the Chancellor is putting aside for bounce-back loans and interruption loans. Surely universities should be given a bit of a, a supporting hand. Universities, education, health, two very important things, should be yeah. given some extra cash to say, listen, um, we've got all of these young people, not many left because the average age of people here in this country is over 40, but those who are aspirational, these guys are the future of industry. Let's give them these fantastic MBA courses, Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, Imperial, Warwick, Cranfield, whoever it may be, and we'll give you a ton of cash to subsidize or have even more full, full scholarships um, for young, bright people. And of course, you've got to you know, do your GMAT, do whatever the qualification criteria is. Don't you think it's a smart thing to do that now, bearing in mind where we are economically? Yeah. So, so MBA programs tend to, to go cyclically with the economy. When the economy starts to go down, MBA and MBA applications tend to dip. When the economy starts to bottom out, MBA applications go up dramatically. It, it's when people are starting, you know, to say, okay, yeah, I'm not getting a job right now. Let me go get more education. And let's take this out of the, the realm of MBA because, again, I think MBAs are really applicable to people who have multiple years of work experience. When you're talking about young folks, uh, I, I think in a downturn, one way an economy can bounce back is by funding education. One is it keeps people out of unemployment. They're doing something valuable. It's an investment in the future so that then uh, they can help drive the company out of that downturn. Uh, and be ready for the next upswing in, in the economic levers. Um, in, in driving MBAs, yeah, I think that's good. I think what you're looking at there is you're looking at uh, managers who have been laid off, maybe their companies are disappearing because of the change in the environment, uh, that that would be a great opportunity to go to. Uh, there have been a number of government plans in the past where uh, when people have been let go, that you can change some of the, the effects of that by giving them the opportunity to go get an education. I actually worked for one of the consulting firms when they went through a significant downturn. And uh, one of the ways they did that was say, okay, we, we will pay you a very small stipend, but we'll pay your tuition to go to college. But the intention is, is that when you finish, you will come back to work for us and we get the right of first refusal for your employment right. and if you don't come back to work for us then you have to pay us back for the degree but if yeah. you do then your degree is free mm. yeah and right. and it was a it was a great method for companies to hold on to people that they thought were talented and creative and innovative but right now i just don't have enough work for you yeah and I think government sponsorship of those kind of programs could be extremely beneficial. You know, until we get vaccines in hand, until, until we're able to go back to work fully, there's going to be a lot of pain in the economy. Uh, and there are going to be a lot of people who are unemployed or underemployed. And I do think education is a way that we can not just give out money, but 
invest in people so that they can help us drive out of the curve. Um, so yeah, I, I'd love that. I am not a politician, um, but almost every economist I've talked to is, is a downturn is when you need to invest in your company in your, and in your country. Uh, and, and education is the infrastructure of HR, of human resources. And so, yeah, that we, we do need to, to invest in that. On that note, Jim, we do have to wrap up the hour here. Um, I really like your conclusion, con conclusionary points around investment into the future. And that really is the gift of education and the power of education. There are many ways to be educated these days. And I really like you speaking to the engagement factor, the conversational factor. That's how I learn best. That's how humans seem to learn best and experience. So I thank you for bringing up those great points today. And um, just want to share really quick, we're going to be live again next week. And it's going to be a fantastic program on one of my very favorite topics, which happens to be artificial intelligence. And how the heck... Could that actually be our literally our best friend that's going to help us track and monitor and get through these times better than we could on our own? Or could it also be our worst enemy in terms of privacy and all the issues that are raised around tracking and, and the powers of technology? So we're going to go deep with Nicholas Carinos next week, who is an AI architect, creator, and genius in Cyprus. And that's going to be a fantastic deep dive into AI in a post-pandemic world, friend or foe. Thank you all for tuning in today, Jim. Thank you especially for your generous time and um, your great points you made. And thank you all the listeners who tuned in and look forward to checking this out on the replay as well. Keep checking out Straight Talk Live every Thursday, 9 a.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. British Standard Time. Thank you all. All the Good best. Night. Good night. You will, Jim. The MBA, your appreciating asset. <laughs> take, take good care of that beautiful mustache of yours. We can do it. You will ever get your MBA, you can have a mustache like this. <laughs> on those on that note, au revoir. All the best. Au revoir.